Aren't these exciting times to be alive? I remember when I was younger, I used to always dream about being, you know, part of the medieval times because of the knights and all that kind of thing. And there's so much um, talk out there about wanting to exist in some past world where things were dreamy and better and all of that. But the more I live and the more I see what the church is up to today, the more excited I am about being alive right now. And although the headlines in the news and the things that we see on our screen right now are horrifying. I mean, some of the things going on, the invasion in Ukraine right now is a horrifying sight to behold. Have you all seen the video, though, of the Christians worshiping in the subway? If you haven't yet, Google it, find it. There, there's this gathering of saints. They met down in the subway. I think it's in Kiev, and they're just uh, worshiping Jesus and boldly proclaiming his protection over their nation while the tanks are rolling right toward them. And it's just an extraordinary thing to see the church, the hope of every nation, for the last 2,000 years has been a praying church, has been a church that takes its role and responsibility seriously, has been a church that says we're not going to sit idle and watch history unfold. We'll be the ones who receive power from on high. We'll be the ones who receive wisdom from on high, who are in touch with heaven's plans and heaven's agenda for this nation. And not only pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but be God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? So that's, that's what we're for. And although we have a, a, sta- a status of relative peace here in the United States, there's, you know, September 11th was a horrifying day. We've been insulated from a lot of the issues in the world. It, it hits me all afresh every time I travel to Liberia, somewhere else in the world, and see what most of the world lives like. There is still a lot of territory to be taken for the kingdom of heaven. A lot of people who still live under either some kind of governmental oppression or the oppression of poverty, the oppression of the kind of, I mean, we were right around people still worshiping ancestral deities and, you know, animists and people that worship spirits in these little tomb thingies. And that's still really common all around the world. So the good news is we're very much needed all over the world. Isn't that good to know? that were needed, but that's only half the battle. Jesus told his disciples to pray a prayer in John chapter four. He said, pray, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray that the Lord will send laborers into that harvest. What I love about that story is that he told them to pray that, and he said, oh look, there's 12 right now. (laughs) They became the answer to that prayer right then and there. And I wanna urge you to be prayerful about what Jesus is telling you to do in terms of going. This message series, I sure hope, and I've been praying, that this isn't going to be one of those things that where we become hearers of the word only and not doers of the word. At the end of this and at the end of the process I'm sharing about, I recognize we're all in various stages of spiritual maturity and growth. We'll all find ourselves somewhere in the process I'm unfolding to you. But there's got to be a time that we consider ourselves to be sent ones, whether it means traveling somewhere outside of Millersburg, Halifax, wherever we live, or it means we're sent into the community where we live, we have got to come to a place where we mature in Christ enough that we say, send me, Lord. Here I am, send me. May the Lord not wonder ever when he looks at a nation, hey, where where are my people right now? I need somebody to stand in the gap. I need somebody to fill the void. Right now, heaven wants to be a part of the earth, but it's got to come through the ones that the earth was given to. That's us. That's the people. And so there's got to be a people that say, here I am, Lord, send me. Just point me in the direction you want me to go and consider my answer yes. 
Before you even say it, the answer is yes, I will go. You know, if it weren't, honestly, if I weren't a married man and if it weren't for my family, I feel such a draw to, the, we, we've been in touch with unreached peoples now in Liberia, and if it weren't for my love for you and my love for my family, I'd, I'd still be there right now. Because there was this draw, there was this feeling. I mean, we, we baptized some people into Christ, but then we saw the Lord touch people in a powerful, profound way. People who just, like a week ago, were worshiping their ancestral spirits, and now they're in Christ, and they're newborn babes, and it's just, there's this big, wide world out there waiting for people to respond to the Lord and say, where is it, Lord? And I, I just, you know, as I shared with you last week about the place of Bethel, the place of comfort and convenience, the place where we're experiencing the blessings of God, but we keep them and we hold on to them and we stay in this place where the, the benefit of the kingdom of heaven has been replaced by the American dream. And so long as I got my, I'm comfortable, I got my retirement plan, I got my, I got money in the bank, I have a nice place to live, nice car to drive and everything's good, I got a family that I love and hey, I'm comfortable. Do you know that comfort is the greatest enemy of the advancement of the kingdom of heaven? Uh, the, the kingdom of heaven has always survived front-on assault from the kingdom of darkness, even when it comes in the form of fr outright persecution, people being burned alive in stakes uh, to light up fires at Nero's palace, I mean, the, or parties at Nero's palace. We've survived thousands of persecutions, millions upon millions of believers in Jesus Christ going to the grave as a result of being public with their faith. Still happens today. All over the world it still happens today. But I wanna tell you that the greatest danger to the church is not that kind of opposition from the enemy. It's a complacent, apathetic church. And we are no such church. If you're looking for that kind of church, this is not, you're not gonna feel comfortable here. My role in your life, if you feel that way, is to make you divinely uncomfortable. If it means lighting a fire underneath your seat, I'll set your seat on fire if that's what it takes. Because I, for one, believe that we're a company that's not just here to fill space. You know, when Jesus said, occupy till I come, he didn't mean just occupy space. He meant occupy territory that was once owned and ruled by the kingdom of darkness. So that comes in the form of individual lives that each of us will be blessed to touch, that we will be persistent until we see that life brought into the kingdom of heaven fully. Sometimes it means towns or regions. Sometimes it means nations. Sometimes it means places that we hadn't even thought of praying about. And God's going to send us in that place. So I pray that this word, Father, I pray that this word and this series that you have us in right now will be provocative in the right kind of way. That you would provoke us to love and good works May we not be a people who just read and hear your word and say, oh, that was great. That, in, that inspired me. I know so much more right now, and I feel so inspired right now. God, I pray that you'd put a fire under our rear ends. You'd put a fire under us that we would take action on what we hear, and we'd see the kingdom come and your will done on earth in our day. Why not now? Why not our generation? Why not begin right here among us? Amen. So the hope for all nations has always been found in Christ, in every saint. You know, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what we carry. Christ in you, Christ in every one of us, the hope of glory. The hope of every nation is found in Christ in every saint, moving from the hope of glory to the manifestation of that glory. So, you know, hope means you don't see it yet. You don't hope for something you have already. 
I'm not, man, I hope somebody would give me this really nice red Liberian shirt that's all soft and fits just right. I don't have to hope for it anymore. Somebody made this for me while I was over there. It's so soft and comfortable. It's just, this woman who made all these garments you've been seeing us wear, she just looked at pictures of us. No pattern. She just done, got a piece of fabric, looked at the picture, went and stitched it. And they all fit. That, that's supernatural. I don't understand how, how people knit garments anyway, but the woman who did that just did it on Facebook pictures of all of us. And, uh, so I don't, I'm not hoping for this shirt. You know why? I already got it. So you don't hope for that which you already have. So if Christ in us is the hope of glory, what do we do to take the hope of glory and make it a manifestation of glory? Manifestation means I can see it now. It was once hidden, but now I can see it. I don't have to have faith for it. I don't have to believe God for it. It's right there in front of my eyes. So being clothed with Christ means that we are now representing his authority in the places to which we're sent. So we, we, the hope of glory being revealed means that the world can see, the earth itself can see, the sons and daughters of God are here. The people who have humbled themselves before God and said, apart from you, we can do nothing. Without you, God, we have wrecked this place. You planted us in a beautiful garden called paradise. That's what Eden means. You put this beautiful earth for us. You gave us this gorgeous garden. It was perfect, and we wrecked the joint. And so we're humbling ourselves. The people of God are those who have humbled themselves and said, wow, all of our best efforts to improve ourselves, all of our best efforts to improve this world, they just keep falling flat. The harder we try, it seems, the more we mess it up. What better people to have authority in the earth than those who are humble? To those who have said that we need God to come through on these things. We, we can't do it without God. We've got to be reconnected to the creator inside of us so that he can become manifest outside of us and the world will never be the same. So we're called to represent. So we present the Lord, the one who's in us, we present that Lord to the world. And the more accurately we can do it, the more maturely we could do it, Remember, maturity is going from the self-centered world to the other-centered world. That's maturity, growing in love. The more we represent the Lord that way, the more transformation the world happens. Those are what we want. That's what we want in authority. So this happens when we've matured enough to fill that mantle that we've been given. The name of this series is being mantled with authority, mantled, clothed with Christ. To be clothed with Christ is wearing a mantle. A mantle represents authority, it represents an office, it represents a position. So if I would take this shirt and put it on my three-year-old, it wouldn't be able to move. It's just too big, but it still would be that three-year-old's mantle. That three-year-old's gotta grow up. That three-year-old's gotta grow up. Everybody, we could say to ourselves right now, time for me to grow up. It's time for me to mature. It's time for me to take my responsibility seriously, not wait for someone else to do what God's entrusted to my care. And so we have this process laid out in 1 John where he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you children because you know the father. And I've written to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Three stages of growth described in the scriptures. Little children are like those who are at the place of Gilgal that we looked at a few weeks ago. 
That place where it's, I'm just realizing right now that forgiveness is available to me. That no matter what I've done, if I humble myself and repent, the Father's door is wide open, and that's how I get to know the Father. I find out that the Father is just like the dad in that prodigal son story, that he's been looking for my return. He's been eager for that day that I would come back and say, I blew it, I messed up, I, need, I want to come back home right now. What's it going to take? And that Father immediately is going to wrap you up in those arms and say, I missed you. I'm so glad you're home. You don't need to do any penance. Get some clothes on your body and come on in. We're having a party right now. That that's what the Father in heaven's like. That's little children. That's the beginning of our days walking with God where we have all those old things cut off. We learn the fine art, the beautiful art of repentance, of what it means to be forgiven when we humble ourselves and repent and say, I was wrong. And we learn then what the Father is like. That's where we begin in the Lord, but that's not where we end. That's just getting started. That's what every newborn baby comes into in life. If they grow up in a family, if they're born into a family of love, I mean, you think of how we've fallen over little babies. I mean, everything stops when a little baby comes in the room. There was a little baby, Martina, at Pastor Martin's house. I mean, when she came in the room, she was, what, like eight months old, something like that. This beautiful little thing. When that girl came in the room, Everything stopped. All of us. It didn't matter what we were doing. Everybody's eyes on that little baby. That's what it's like coming into the kingdom of heaven. We realize that heaven's eyes on us. But how many of you know you can't stay like that forever? Because when you're a baby, it's cute that you think you're the center of attention. It's not cute when you're 30. And you think the whole world needs to revolve around you and your little temper tantrums and all of that. So we progress and we move on. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. This is the stage of maturity now where we're beginning to take responsibility. We say the word of God's in me now. I don't, want, I don't just need somebody else to tell me what the word says. I know what the word says. I'm getting it in. I'm learning how to feed myself. You all know already if you've been with me for a while, my pet peeve answer for complaining about the church is I'm just, I'm not getting fed there. Like, man, isn't that time you learn how to feed yourself? And I get it. I know there, there should be the Bible preached from the pulpit. It should be a living word. It should be prophetic and all of that. I get all of that. But there's got to come a point in time where what you hear from this pulpit, we don't even have a pulpit. What's another word we could use? I don't, I don't like standing behind a pulpit. It's too restrictive. Platform, microphone, the conch, I got the conch. I What's it called? An altar. Whatever you hear from the mouth of whoever's jabbering at you up here should be a confirmation. This is one way of knowing you've reached the young man's stage of maturity in Christ. I'm hearing confirming words. I'm hearing things that my spirit already knew. Or, wow, I just read that the other day. Or the Lord spoke that truth to me already. This is a confirming voice so that you have the courage to go out and proclaim it. And live it with, with confidence that, yeah, that is the Lord. I'm not crazy. I might still be peculiar, but I'm not crazy. This what, that's what young man means. The word of God abides in you. Now you're, you're overcoming strongholds. That's what we're going to look at today. You're learning how to engage in spiritual warfare. Those things that used to keep you stuck, they're not keeping you stuck anymore. Those things that used to slide you down on some path of temptation and sorrow and destruction, not even a temptation anymore. You can walk right past it, and it doesn't even catch your eye. 
That's, that's overcoming the evil one. You're strong because you've been together with the one who gives you strength. The joy of the Lord's now giving us strength. And it's not just, you know, I gotta be strong. You know, I, was just, I just did a couple memorial services in the last few weeks and I talked with somebody who says that, that thing that, that mothers or fathers always say, well, I gotta be strong for everybody right now. And I'll always say, no, you don't. Worst thing you could do right now is not give everybody permission to grieve along with you. And if you're grieving right now and you try to bottle that up, you're going to hurt yourself and everybody around you. You go ahead and have a good cry. That's courageous. That's strength. And you give everybody else permission to grieve with you. That's how you all come through the other side. Not with this fake kind of strength that just pretends I'm going to be all stoic right now, even though I'm broken on the inside and I'm going to go to church and put on my church face. And when they say, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm great too blessed to be stressed. And meanwhile, you're falling apart on the inside and you're not fooling anybody. I don't know who I was just talking to. Maybe it was just me. So, so we, we, you're strong. We're strong because we've learned how to let the Lord be our strength. But then there's got to come this, this day. How many of you know you could be a young man and not be a father? You can stay a young man forever. You're going to get old eventually, I mean, you could decide when that is, but a young man simply means you're mature now. But to become a father, you got to have kids. I know that was like the most mind-blowing truth of the day right there. You can't be a father unless you have children, right? And so there's got to come a point in time where you take that next step where you say, I am willing now to take responsibility for the lives of other people, to impart what I have and what I carry in Christ, that I will lay down my life. There is no more sacrificial ministry in life than being a father or a mother. This is one of those mind-blowing truths about life and the way God designed it to be, that a newborn baby is born into a house where parents are given more authority over their own children than any other office of authority. Biblically speaking, the way that life works, you have complete and total, I mean, a baby is completely helpless. You have authority about where that baby is going to lie down. You have control over everything. And it's because you love them, because you're going to care for them. And at the same time, the one who has the most authority that that child will ever see in his or her life also has the most love for them than anybody who will ever see, they will ever meet for the rest of their lives. A love that never ends. And so this package of complete authority and total love is how we get introduced to life. And so spiritually, all of us, whether we have biological children or not, and whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, whether you're 12 years old, I know some 15-year-olds in this church who would be awesome spiritual fathers and mothers. I don't recommend having biological children yet. Just saying. But you could be spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers Anytime you come to that stage of maturity where what you have, you can impart to somebody else. That's all of us. That's when we know that we've become mantled with authority because God doesn't just give authority to just anyone in his kingdom. He's looking for those who have already humbled themselves to the point of if you're going to be the greatest in the kingdom, you're going to learn how to be the servant of all. Mothers and fathers wait on their children hand and foot. You are cleaning spit up, not only off them, but off you, out your eyeballs. You are cleaning their diaper. You're doing everything. Serving, 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 serving. You don't, you can't even, I'll never forget the first time, at least I did. I don't know if my wife did too, but we had our firstborn at the house and I grabbed my jacket. I was ready to take her out for dinner. And it was, oh yeah, we got a baby now. We can't just go out anymore. 
We can't just do whatever we want to do anymore. We got this child. And then God kept adding more and more of them. And then it got hard, and then it got hard to find babysitters. Like, six? Yeah, I'm busy. You know, it, and it, you know, and you realize how restricted your life has become, and you don't regret it for a moment because you just love your kids that much, that it doesn't even feel like a sacrifice. Imagine a world full of leaders who have that kind of mindset. I will sacrifice my own comfort and my own convenience for the sake of blessing those that I have authority over. Imagine presidents and kings and governors thinking that way. Imagine if you will, a billion Christians around the world who have matured in Christ and have come to a place that that's our outlook on the world. How can I bless you? How can I take the authority that I've been mantled with from on high to be a blessing to you, to my community, to my nation? My entire life's bent as a father and mother is toward their children is to help you grow up and help you come into the best life you could possibly have. Imagine a world filled with such people. So back to our story. I'm going to just kind of hop over it. Um, you can listen to the first three weeks. But we have this moment where Elijah and Elisha are at this place of Bethel. We went from Gilgal, which is a place of cutting off all the old things. Gilgal is a place of shedding the old life. It's where the men of Israel were circumcised. It's their first point of contact in the promised land. No fighting there yet just being consecrated to the Lord, and that's what Gilgal represents. We're consecrated, we belong to you. It's like being spiritual children. Then they came to the next place called Bethel. This is where Elijah and Elisha are on their journey together. Bethel is a place where uh, Jacob saw the angels ascending and descending from heaven. It's the place of interaction with heaven. It's the place where we learn how to receive his benefits and how to interact with heaven, where God becomes our God, but we think of those benefits not like Jacob did, but we think of those benefits like a maturing son or daughter of God does. I've been blessed. Who gets this blessing that God just trusted to me? We had that picture that Joel had in pre-service prayer. When we went to Liberia, we had 17 total suitcases and 15 of them or 12, 13 of them were filled just with gifts. Can you imagine if we had to bring all that back home again? I mean, it was a, just getting from the van to the check-in counter. It, it was, I don't know what it was. I, I can't think of a metaphor. It was hard. It was really hard. And, you know, we had to do two or three trips. And then you watch those bags while we go in because, you know, we're at the airport and you don't want somebody to steal all that bag full of Bibles. So imagine all that baggage and some of the weights that we carry because we're carrying blessings that God meant for somebody else. And some of that thing, some of the things that cause us grief and problems in life are because we're still holding on to something that God meant for us to just be the mailman and give to somebody else. That's Gilgal. We don't want to stay in that place. So Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord sent me to Jericho. In other words, I am moving on to the next stop in this journey, and stay here. If you want, there's a company of prophets here ready to receive you. Stay here. God's called me to go on. But Elisha and his spirit, he knew, I am connected to Elijah and he said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And so they came to Jericho. And the same things happen in the other, as in the other places at Jericho. So what's Jericho represent? This is like a spiritual journey. Jericho, as you know, is the first fruits of victory in the promised land. This was the first actual battle, battle that Israel had when they came into the promised land. It's the first fruits. It's their first taste in the land of their possession. This is the amazing thing about the promised land. It's flowing with milk and honey. 
but it's got giants in it, and it has fortified cities in it, and it's got danger, it's got lions and tigers and bears, oh my, it's got all of the dangers in it, but it's yours, this is your inheritance, but you're going to have to contend for it because it's become overgrown in your absence. There's some things that we're going to have to do together. And so Jericho is the first place Israel crossed over the Jordan on dry land. This generation, the Joshua generation, they came in and now they're ready to occupy the promised land. But they got some enemies occupying it. Some people right now that are worshiping the sun and moon, the sacrifice their children to Moloch. They're doing all kinds of stuff and it's time to dispossess them of the land that belonged to God's people. So they come to Jericho and in Je- and the victory at Jericho, you all know the story. I'm going to read it real quick in a minute here. But Jericho is where we learn how to partner with God. Jericho is where we learn the art of spiritual warfare is always that we work together with God. How do we work together with God? We partner with God through simple obedience, which unlocks the power of God to demolish strongholds. Jericho is the place where we learn how to do spiritual warfare, not in the strength of our natural selves, not in the wisdom of our own strength. This is where we learn how to overcome strongholds, both those within and those without, by just simply obeying God. Now I'm gonna just kind of skip through the story. You all know it, but Jericho was locked up. They saw Israel out there on the plains, and the people were afraid. And here's what God said, to Joshua, he said, "Tell, see, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warrior. So here's the plan, Josh. This is what we're going to do. You're going to march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. And I want you to do that every day for six days. And while you're at it, I want seven priests to carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And while they're carrying those things, uh, they're going to march around and on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times and the priests will blow the trumpets. And when they make that loud blast with the trumpet, um, you hear it, everybody shout with a great shout and the wall of the city is going to come tumbling down and everybody's just going to go in. Okay. <laughs> this is... <laughs> so you're Joshua and you have a million people. These kids have spent their entire life wandering around in the wilderness. They've heard the stories of the battle against the Amalekites. They've heard stories. They've experienced fighting before with swords and shields and with stones and whatever else they fought with in there. And and then Josh comes back from meeting with God. He said, hey, God told us the battle plan. You ready for this? This is what we're going to do. We're going to walk around the city. Uh, yeah, that's great. And then, then we're going to put up some ramparts or something like that. We're going to get some, some ladders and climb in. What are we going to do? We're going to throw stones and so, how, how are we going to do it? Nope. We're just going to walk around. And, and then what, what should we carry with us? Uh, some trumpets. We're going to bring some, some musical instruments with us with this. And we're going to walk around. Oh, all right. And we're going, to, we're going to yell at them, right? We're going to intimidate them. No, no. Actually, God said just stay dead silent. Just walk around. Just walk around, carry your trumpets on the ark. Don't forget the ark. We're going to schlep that thousand-pound ark with us. So while they're up there with their arrows and whatever kind of weapons they got, staring down at us, having the high ground, we're just going to walk right under them. We're going to carry this thousand-pound ark on our shoulders, and we're, gonna, and we're just going to walk. And then we're going to storm the gates, right? No, you're just going to walk around. It's the craziest battle plan of all time. Well, until you read some other battle plans that God gave him, and then you realize this is just common. This is just kind of how God rolls. 
Let's make the stupidest battle plan you could possibly have. And you know what the point is of every victory story? I'm going to give you a stupid battle plan because I don't want anybody ever to think that you did this. I am not doing this in such a way that you're ever going to be able to take credit for it. And somehow we still do. (laughs) Somehow God does these supernatural signs and wonders. And the one who works the miracle, works the miracle, says, hey, look at what I did. Did you see that? I led the people in victory. I healed that sick person. I raised that dead person. No, you didn't. The Lord reminded me of this great word I heard years ago, and I shared it in Liberia about the donkey that carried Jesus into Jerusalem. Have I shared this here before? It sounds familiar. I'm going to share it again because I like it. The donkey, right? Imagine the day of the triumphal entry, and there's the donkey. He's got Jesus on his back. Jesus, the Son of God, and the whole city comes out. And by the way, this is the city swelled in size for the Feast of the Passover. So we got a million people now in a city made for 100,000. And they all come out. And they're laying down their palm branches. And they're laying down their coats. And they're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And there's the donkey carrying Jesus on its back. And if this donkey were like a lot of how we do things sometimes, the donkeys there are like, wow. Look at all these people that came out for me today. They're waving palm branches at me. They're shouting, look at what I'm carrying. I'm so important. Put me on the front of a magazine. Give me a TV show. Sorry, I didn't. Some of the people are not like that, all right, on those shows, but some of them are, and it bothers me. God is the one, and he gives us ways of going through life and victory that are going to be so weird, so weird. And, and the, it, gets, it starts out weird, right? God asks us to do something or go in a certain way, take a certain job, not do something, whatever the word of the Lord is. And, and at first it sounds weird, but how many of you know after time starts passing, it gets weirder every day? You know what I'm talking about? Like I shared a little bit of our testimony with you last week after we moved to Pennsylvania and I got a third job offer while we knew that we were moving here for the sake of pastoral ministry. God's ways started feeling a little weirder. Are you sure about this? Yeah, I'm I'm here making phone sales to sell T-shirts. I'm not a phone sales kind. You all know me. Imagine me cold calling you and trying to do, somebody went, (laughs) cold calling presidents of corporations trying to sell them screen printing and embroidery products. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I laugh too. And every day I went in and this is like walking around the walls of Jericho to me. This is nonsense. I did make one sale though. It was amazing. And so this guy we clicked, we were Yankee fans and he owned a bunch of Burger King franchises in New Jersey. Biggest sale the company made all year, which was awesome. But not me. That was when the walls came down and a week later I was hired as a children's pastor. But anyway, the plan of God feels weird. The way of God into victory may feel weird. And we are tempted, and this is one of the problems we have, is that we have so many resources in the West. We can go for so many different kinds of help, but I want to urge you, if that help doesn't involve the power of God in some way, you're only having a partial victory. You can heal the mind and the soul. You can even heal the body without the Lord. But only God can touch to the level of the Spirit. And the Spirit is the source and the root of every issue of life. 
And so we need the power of God to be present in something, and that's what Jericho is all about. Jericho is the place where we learn how to partner with God, where we learn how to move with him, even when the plan seems crazy, even when it just feels like, my goodness, God, what, are you sure about this? So I'm going to just give you four keys to victory from Jericho, if I can get the slide thingy to cooperate here. Can you get to that next black slide for me? I can't find it. My thing's being slow. That's the one, four keys to victory. So you know the story well enough. You can read it. It's in Joshua chapter 6 afterward. Jericho represents the place in our maturity now where we have to learn how to overcome strongholds. Strongholds come in two forms. The most common one are the internal strongholds of our heart and our lives. Strongholds represent a place where we have thoughts, where we have beliefs, you know, we live all of our life out of our belief system, right? And whatever we believe will become manifest in the choices we make. It'll become manifest in the words that come out of our mouth. And if we have beliefs or thoughts in our heart that argue with what the Word of God says to us, that's a demonic stronghold. That's literally what the phrase means. It's not about demons living inside of our heart. I mean, there is such a thing as deliverance. That's not what these strongholds are about. They're belief systems that actually argue with God. So for example, if I would stand in front of you and say God loves you no matter what you've done in your history, in a moment you can turn and repent and God will forgive you. But something in you says, oh, you don't know the things I've done. Oh no, the, the things that I, you, man, I murdered somebody or whatever. I, you don't, that's a stronghold. You're arguing with the truth of God's word. That's what these are. So the promised land in the Old Testament represents our heart. That's the first possession that we get back in Christ. It represents paradise. It represents eternity. But the first place the promised land represents is our heart. And inside of our heart, when we're born again, we may possess it, We've been given our free will back again. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now we're sons and daughters. We're free. But we, we still got, as we say, God can get Israel out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of Israel is another matter. That's what growth and maturity, that's discipleship. And so we got these strongholds as Israel, city by city, had to take these strongholds so they could occupy the land in peace. So it is with our hearts. And that's what Jericho is, the first fruits of victory. And from what we learn from that, the first fruit of victory in Christ is that we overcame our pride, humbled ourselves before God, and said, apart from you, I'm a wretch. All my righteousness is like filthy rags. Everything I thought that made me so good, now that I'm looking at you, now that I see what actual perfection looks like, I realize all of my pride, I'm just throwing it down to the ground. My crowns, my, my, all my rejoicing, even my richest gain, I count as dung compared to the riches that I'm seeing in front of me right now. That's Jericho. That's the first most important stronghold that needs to come down. It guards the promised land. You gotta come through Jericho first before you can occupy the rest of it. And it's, it's what it looks like to be born again. It's what it looks like to come to a place where we say, I'm starting from scratch. I don't know anything right now. That stronghold of believing, the pride of life, as Jesus put it. I believe that I can, I can have eternal life without God. I believe that I can, my good works outweigh my bad works, and that's going to have to be good enough for you. You remember the parable of the wedding feast where at the end of it there's this guy that comes in not wearing a wedding garment, right? You remember this parable? He comes in. Everybody else has a wedding garment. From the rich to the poor, everybody has a garment. They've been clothed with Christ. 
That's what that parable represents. Here's this one guy. He comes in without a wedding garment. And, and they, you know, they must have offered him one at the door. And he said, no, I don't need a wedding garment. My clothes are good enough. And he was thrown out because he didn't take Jericho. That's the place where you humble yourself and you recognize, as Israel had to. God is not dependent on us at all. But we have an utter dependence on him. And so he gives us this ridiculous battle plan of a cross. The Son of God is going to become manifest in the earth. And he's not just going to come and sit on the throne where Nero Caesar ruled, because that throne's not high enough anyway for him. He's not going to come rule and sit on a throne. He's going to humble himself. He's going to be a servant. He's going to be in the form of man. He's going to become obedient to God to the death of a cross. He's going to humble himself that way. It's a stumbling block. It's a place where to put our faith in that, that that one man's sacrifice is good enough to pay for everything I've ever done. I don't have to atone for my own sin. I don't have to work hard so that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. That's the first pride-filled stronghold to overcome. And that stronghold says, I can do this without God's help. It would be Israel looking at Jericho with the walls wide enough, archaeologists say, to ride on with chariots, the, this stronghold and saying, oh, we could figure out a way to take that stronghold. And the only way it's coming down is by doing some goofy thing of walking around with the ark and carrying the presence of God and seeing those walls tumble down. So every victory from that day onward should be just like the first one. How did any of us come to Christ? We humbled ourselves and said, yes, I need the cross. I need what Jesus did on that cross. I cannot achieve the kind of righteousness that represents heaven on my own. I need, I need that. And so crucify me in Christ. I'll, I'll put everything that I'm proud of, everything I'm not proud of, I'll put it all. You know, there's pride and then there's worm pride, right? Worm pride says I'm not worthy, therefore God can't tell me that I'm worthy. Worm pride keeps God at a distance by saying, well, I'm not worth this, this good news that God's afforded me. It's, it's just pride. It's saying, I know better than God what he wants to forgive me of. God's wrong about that. I don't deserve to be forgiven for that, so I won't receive forgiveness for that. It's just another form of pride. And we put all that on a cross. That's how we come in. Every spiritual victory that follows suit should be the same way. There is never a point in time no matter how long we walk and how much we progress in our understanding of God's ways, the word of God abiding in our hearts, no matter how strong in spirit we become, no matter how many strongholds we've overcome to where it becomes almost like, you know, I, I know how to do this. But there's never a time that we are not completely dependent on God as we were that first day we were born again. There is nothing. Jesus said it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. Like a vine has to abide, a branch has to abide in the vine. Abide in me and bear fruit. So four keys of victory. Number one, just do what God said. Just do what God said. It's just that simple. My mom, after we had somewhat of an awakening in my house in high school, I went on this youth retreat and I got kind of, I, I got woke to Jesus. I didn't really give my life to him, just enough to believe that God loved me. And my, my testimony involves, well, I knew God loved me, and I reasoned, well, if God loves me, he wants me to enjoy life. And so I went and did whatever I wanted to do, which was a lot of bad stuff. She had this magnet on the fridge. It said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And so that's, 
that's the kind of obedience that leads to the simplicity of faith. We make things so dang complicated. It's the craziest thing. Jesus took all of the concepts of, of life and he boiled them down to these simple parables that a child in the kingdom can understand. And then we, we, we study them and we make them complicated again so it takes an hour to explain a parable Jesus told in 30 seconds. You tracking with me? Maybe I went to seminary too long. I don't know. <laughs> but we make things so complicated. God makes it so simple, and then we recomplicate it again. It's just really simple. If we know that God said it, we just do it. We pray prayers. You know, do you want to hear the voice of God better? How many of you would like to hear the voice of God better? Be more clear in your understanding of what God's saying. I can tell you right now, first key to hearing the voice of God is to have a predisposition that says, yes, Lord, before he speaks. Before I even know what I'm about to hear from you. Even if it means it's going to cut me to the core and tell me I've been wrong all my life. My answer is yes, Lord. Even when it makes no sense. Even if you're going to tell me to walk around some dang city with my enemy laughing at me up on the walls for seven days. Until the walls come down, I'm going to do it. Because God said it. And that's all I need to believe and all I need to know. Just do what God said. Just do it. It really is that simple. I would propose to you, I've only been in Christ 32 years, been a pastor 21, and, and in all the people I've walked with, that just this one right here would set 90% of the people I've tried to help free. What did God say? You know, I've been looking at, at the prophecies like I shared with you a few weeks ago. I brought them with me. I was reading them on the plane back from Liberia. And I hope I don't know the word of the Lord better than any of you knows the word of the Lord over your life because I'm going to start getting in your face about it. Because if God said it and you're not doing it yet, that's the problem. That's the pro You want to know why the wall ain't coming down? Are you walking around it? Because, you know, the fact that God said it doesn't mean the wall's coming down. God said it and our response determines whether the walls are going to come down. I'm going to tell you right now, if the people would have responded to Joshua, you're nuts. You're crazy. Go back to God and ask him for another. How many times have you heard something from God and then you said, oh, that couldn't have been God? And so you pause right there, almost like, okay, God, when you have a better answer for me, or when you say something that makes sense to me, now then I'm listening. I'm going to tell you, you go, we ruin our ability to hear the voice of God when we do that. You want to hear God more clearly? Have the answer be yes before he even speaks. Number two, honor the presence of the Lord with you. Honor the presence of the Lord. They carried that ark. That thing weighed about a half a ton by some estimate. Some say even heavier. We don't really know. But they carried that thing on the, sh on the shoulders of the priests. And we carry the presence of God. All throughout the Old Covenant, every victory, the ark of God was with them. Because under the Old Covenant, God was willing to say, I love you so much, I'm willing to confine my presence to a box for you. Now, of course, he didn't. God wasn't all in that box. God still fills the earth and, and all, the, all of his creation and then some. But he said, I'm willing to occupy that box so I will be with you wherever you go. When we carry the presence with us, we honor the fact that it's not us, it's Christ in us. It's Christ that we're carrying right now, like that donkey carrying Jesus to Jerusalem. I'm carrying the presence of God and I'm going to honor that. I'm going to live in such a way. I'm going to live my whole life in such a way that Jesus feels very much welcome in my house. He feels very welcome at my table. I'm not putting my body, I'm not putting my life in places where if Jesus was sitting at the table, he'd be grieved in his spirit. 
I'm not going to live that way. I'm honoring the presence of the Lord as I walk. And, and when you do that, you know, you don't have to shout at the devil. He don't care anyway. I mean, we have authority, but, you know, it's like that. You ever have a teacher who gets up and yells in front of the class? We, we used to have that. Ms. Tui was that teacher, second grade teacher, I think. I'm pretty sure that's who it was. Um, and there were kids in my class that used to scheme on how they could get under her skin so that she would yell again because she made this, like the rain's popping out kind of face, and we all thought it was funny. Authority's not about how loud you shout. It's about how confident you are in the position you occupy. That's what authority is about. A teacher who can stay calm. I mean, there's a teacher at Northern Dolphin Christian School. The high schoolers and middle schoolers are terrified of her. I don't think she ever raises her voice, does she? Have you ever heard her raise her voice? She didn't have to, right? Once. Ooh, I got to hear that story. <laughs> she didn't raise her voice, but she has a look. You know, the scripture says, uh, David said in the psalm, he guides me with his eye. There might be a look, right? There's a look, but not a raising of the voice. They didn't shout until the seventh day after the seventh time around. One shout and the walls came down. You don't have to shout at the devil. Just carry God with you and hold your peace. God, the devil, the spiritual authority, the demonic realm cares about authority, not volume. So, uh, number three, Keep in front of your mind that the battle is the Lord's, not ours. This, this battle, we're facing something, but we're the apple of his eye. If something touches us, it means they just, something just poked God in the eye. That's what the apple of the eye represents, our, the center of our eye. It's the reason why we blink. You know you can't poke yourself in the eye. Don't try it. Your reflex of closing your eye will override your desire to poke yourself in the eye, which I don't know why you would do that, but I just I thought about this one day. <laughs> I didn't test it. But you can't because the, eye, the apple of your eye is the most protected part of your body. It's the quickest reflex we have. Even when there's a speck of dust coming towards your eye, you blink even if your mind doesn't recognize something's coming. That's how quickly we protect the apple of our eye. We are the apple of God's eye. If something touches us, it just poked God in the eye. So we bear that in mind. All spiritual warfare begins with coming before God. I've come before God when somebody's betrayed me, for example, or slandered me. And I just pray, you saw that, right? You, you heard that, right? All right, as long as you heard it. That's all I need to know. And I'm going to just hold my peace now. Most of the time I'm able to do that. <laughs> but so that's how we do it. So we keep in mind, this is Victory 101. Keep in mind that the battle is the Lord's, not ours. If he's not involved in our warfare, that's when the anxiety comes in. That's when the fear comes in. That's where anger takes over. That's where we start using our own devices to overcome evil with evil rather than overcome evil with good. Give honor to the Lord and set apart the first fruits of that victory for him. So you know, if you read on in the story, that Jericho was to be consecrated to the Lord, and all of the treasure in that city, they were not to take any spoil from that city for themselves, they were to put it in the treasury of the Lord, the place that all the, the gold and silver and things they used for building the tabernacle, it was all to go in there, no human was allowed to use it. It was just to be for the purpose of worship. One person named Achan, Took a little bit for himself. Israel went to their next battle, a little town called Ai. I think that's Ai. Ai. I don't know how to say it. Ai. Ai. A. However you say it. Ai. They went to that city and they got their, they got their high knees kicked. They, they ran away. And they asked the Lord, what happened? Jericho comes tumbling down. 
when we just walk around with our instruments and yell. And then we come over here and we get our butts whooped by a city that's like a, a tenth of our size. And God showed them, hey, somebody took some of the consecrated treasure from Jericho. And they, they did this thing, they drew lots, and they figured it out. And they found that it was Achan, and he had some treasure in his tent. So they stoned him to death. And that's why we say, oh, my Achan head. I could have resisted, but I didn't. I didn't. I could have resisted. The point is that the first fruits of all of our victory, if we want to avoid the trap of pride that says, look at what I did, look at what we accomplished, and we want to give all the glory to God, then the best way to live life in all things, from our time, treasure, talent, whatever it is that we have, the first and best goes to the Lord. It's a way of practically honoring the Lord. He loves our worship. He loves our songs. But he also loves our practical demonstration of this. So the first fruits of victory in the promised land all belong to the Lord. Don't touch that. I'll never forget um, this. This was the first message I preached uh, like 25 years ago. First time I traveled. I'd been raised up under Phil Capuccio and he was just being sent out into the itinerant ministry and he talked to a friend of his and that friend invited me down to preach at his church on Long Island. First time I'd ever preached outside of my home church. I was terrified. Traveled down with my family. I think some of our family met us there. It was on Long Island. I don't remember where. Corum? Somewhere around Corum. And uh, so I preached there and they gave an honorarium. And this was the message I preached and I was thinking about Jericho and the Lord really made real to me Give that honorarium as a first fruits offering to the one who raised you up. And so I gave the whole thing right over to Phil Capuccio to honor the Lord. This is Jericho. This is the first fruits of my ministry. The first time that the Lord's going to use me to preach the gospel or preach, you know, the scriptures outside of my house. And so as in Jericho, the first fruits belongs to the Lord. So I gave it as a gift to the Lord. Now I'm just sharing that as an example and urge you to do that with the Lord. If we want to stay in that place of humility, stay in that place where God is honored in all of what we do, don't just thank God for the opportunity. Thank God, show God your thanks by giving the first and the best to the Lord in some way. For me, that was Phil Capuccio. That was the storehouse. That was the place that God used, and that was for me. For you, you know, I would suggest, you know, uh, we've, we've been in the practice of uh, over the years, anytime we got a raise, anytime we got some kind of new thing or a new job, First paycheck goes to the Lord to honor him. This is like a Jericho principle that God's given to us. This is I, not the Lord. You honor the Lord however you see fit, but honor the Lord with the first and with the best. That's Jericho. The Lord get, gets what comes first, and then you watch how all the rest is consecrated as a result. So they went through the same process again. Hey, stay, stay here. Um, I'm going to go on beyond the Jordan, and we'll, we'll get into that when I return. Um, but give that to the Lord and set apart the first fruits of victory for him. Can you go to the next? Um, it says, our Jericho will always be a glorious testimony. But the first fruits means there's still more to come. Jericho is just the first fruits. You know, first fruits doesn't mean it's all the fruits, right? First fruits means, hey, we're just getting started here. So the first fruits goes to the Lord. I would urge us all to live in such a way that our last testimony is just a few days ago, not a few years ago. 
that there ought to be an ongoing sense of God setting me free inside of something or God's using me to set people free on the outside. The things that God's doing in my life, I feel a constant progress forward and more of the kingdom is advancing inside and therefore more of the kingdom's advancing outside in my life. I urge you to just take a check for a minute. I hope, you, I hope you've taken my advice. I'll give it for the 85th time now that you write down the testimonies of Jesus in your life. Whether they're big or small, keep track of what he's done and pull them out on those days when you're tempted to say, oh, God's not doing anything for me right now. Or what has God ever done for me? Or man, I don't feel like, God, I don't feel like anything's going on in my life. Pull those testimony out, testimonies out, rehearse them and thank God for them. And then say, okay, God, it's been like five years since the last time I wrote anything in here. And maybe that's you today. You say, man, it's been a long time since I saw any verifiably supernatural victory inside or outside of my life. And if that's you, I want to say, Lord, I pray that the next testimony will come very soon. That there'll be an immediate obedience to your word and there'll be an immediate, an immediate stepping out into that to see a new victory and new testimony. May there be testimony after testimony as Jesus becomes alive and well in the hearts of every one of us. Hallelujah. So we've got to first possess our own promised land. We need victories on the inside first. Then we can go out and transform the world. Common mistake in newborn babes in Christ. You get all excited and you're, you're one week old in Jesus. Hey, send me to the nations. Let's go. Even the apostles okay, who were with Jesus needed three and a half years. Even then the boys didn't get it. And you look at some of their last questions after Jesus rose from the dead, I'd be like, hey, can I get a few more months with these guys before I you know, come back to heaven, Dad? You know? uh, but, uh, so they got the Holy Spirit, then everything was fine. But they needed time. And the first strongholds that have to be overcome before we start praying about principalities and powers and we're praying for the nations and we're getting into that kind of spiritual warfare, it's got to happen in here first. It's got to happen on the inside. This is the first place of warfare, overcoming those ancient strongholds, the generational things that come down the road. That's going to be a lifetime process, by the way. And sometimes, you know, you get a partial victory in it, then it rears its ugly head again, and you put it back down, it rears its head up again, and it's, it's this constant thing. But first we war inside, then we're prepared for the war outside. So we overcome the enemies within before confronting the enemies without. That's how spiritual warfare works. So that's Jericho. Um, I'll be away next Sunday, but when I return again, I'd like to finish out our journey together with Elijah and Elisha. And I'll do that. So I just want to pray and then um, we have an announcement that we'd like to make for you. So Father, I, I thank you for progressing us that always you've led Hillside in triumph. Always you lead each of us individually in triumph. And I pray, Father, that you will continue to lead us onward. Consider our answer as a church to be yes, whatever the call is. Consider our disposition to be leaning in toward you, hearing your voice, eager to see what you're going to do next. May the best testimonies be in front of us and not behind us until we occupy our Jerusalem and have all of the promised land till the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just like the waters cover the seas. Amen.